What time is it? What time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Time is it? studies and a clinical psychologist who has spent a career fathoming psychological suffering. I often ask myself, are there any greater human anguishes than those caused by war? For the sheer scope of grief and wasted human potential, we have a moral obligation to understand the ultimate reasons why we destroy one another. Fields as varied as economics, political science, religious studies have all tried to explain war. But still, how many of us have reflected on the cruelties of war or have lived them and simply shaken our heads in disbelief? If you watch the news, one of the harsh realities of the world is the number of wars that are ongoing around the globe. Despite all our societal advances, conflicts still arise between groups of people and war is still used as a method to resolve those conflicts. Looking back, you might wonder when and how wars ever got started in the first place. Although there is no way we'll ever know exactly when violence first became a solution to a perceived problem, it's not hard to imagine situations that may have led to one man taking up arms against another. When the first humans roamed Earth, life was harsh, and obtaining food and shelter was hard work. Humans learned that it was more efficient to divide work among a group, and to trade resources with other groups. Conflicts arose between groups of people over resources of the land, food, materials, and shelter, just to name a few. Did one prehistoric group of people decide that they wanted to have the cave another prehistoric group had found first, and take it by force? No one will ever know, but it's easy to imagine how the first fights might have broken out. Look, they're stealing our women. You stole our girls, you half thieves! We want them back. Get in the cave, girls. 
I'll protect those girls to the last drop of your blood. Come on. For a war to occur, there needs to be a large-scale organization of people and weapons directed with a purpose. As a result, the first wars didn't come about until the first societies and civilizations were formed. Along with the monument near Stonehenge, over 70 similar structures are built across Britain. Their distribution has led some to suggest they form a borderland between the west and east of the country. It's at one of these sites, known as Crickley Hill, that scientists have found evidence of Britain's first major civil war. Crickley Hill gives us a completely new picture of the scale of violence in prehistoric Britain. It's really the first time that we see evidence for warfare between separate communities or even groups of communities on a completely different scale to what went on previously. There's a sense that this was a planned event. Possibly the preparations went on for months beforehand, and this was a very committed action. The defenders included men, women, children. The attackers, however, were probably mostly adult male. Studies of tribal warfare provide some idea of the reasons behind these ancient battles. There may be a series of perceived injustices that build up over generations sometimes. And when things come to a boiling point, the violence that does break out can take the form of trying to actually exterminate a neighboring community. You would then be able to take over their resources, to take over their land, their cattle, perhaps even their women. 400 flint arrowheads found at Crickley Hill reveal how the conflict plays out. Distribution of arrowheads. It does look like the attackers have successfully overwhelmed the defense. Once you're inside, you're in much closer proximity to people and fighting at that point would have become hand to hand. Crickley Hill is just one of a number of violent clashes in southern Britain. During this time of war, it appears monument building in these areas comes to a standstill. Excavated skulls from the period provide an insight into the savagery of the fighting. The original point of impact on this individual was from the side, perhaps even slightly behind, coming in from this direction. This was a very sharp, strong blow. This is a rounded fracture arc. There's no question that an injury of this severity, penetrating the cranium, driving the bone fragments into the brain, would be instantly lethal. Schulting's analysis indicates no one is spared from the bloodshed. This is an adult female skull. In Neolithic societies, it seems possible to think that women were not always just innocent bystanders. They may have actually been involved in the conflict and indeed fighting themselves. In this case, we have adhering bone that's slightly depressed, and that indicates to me that there was a, a degree of elasticity in the bone that's typical of the bone being still fresh. In other words, that was a lethal injury. Large-scale hostilities in prehistoric Britain finally come to an end around 3500 BC.
It's an unfortunate fact, but it seems war has always spurred technological development. One of the greatest leaps in technology of warfare was the art of metalworking. Yeah, it was a great leap forward. No longer was it just sticks and stones will break my bones or yours. The extraction and working of metal can be considered a technological revolution. High temperatures even exceeding 1000 degrees Celsius were necessary for extracting metal from ore. Apart from tools and their molds, many sites yielded various smelting implements, like nozzles, melting pots and crucibles. Copper is resilient, but very soft metal and can easily bend, crumple or collapse. So instead of long and heavy blades, spear points and daggers would be created. In the 4th and 3rd millennium BC, copper blades in Europe often resembled the shape and figure of previous stone blades. The earliest copper daggers had short, stout blades with a triangular outline that attempted to balance out the metal softness. They were either cast in mold or cut out and hammered into shape. Early on, a separate hilt was required that was then riveted or glued to the blade. Later, a tang was used to insert blade into the hilt section. Another development was an introduction of a medial ridge. With a thick central spine, the rest of the blade could be thinner and lighter. Historians believe that the first war in recorded history took place in Mesopotamia in 2700 BC between the forces of Sumer and Elam. Although we don't know much about what led to this war, some experts believe it was likely the result of societies beginning to compete for limited resources as agriculture began to replace hunting and gathering. Vikings have long had a notorious reputation as the raiders and pirates of the medieval world, and certainly it's not unjustified. The raids were fearsome and long-running, however they were also explorers and skilled seafarers, managing to spread across Europe and east into Asia, south to northern Africa and as far west as Newfoundland. They established trade routes across the known world and settled in northern Britain, Ireland, and among the Franks, forming the Kievan Rus kingdom on the river Volga. Oh, you might be more familiar with that area as uh, being called Ukraine. The Viking culture kept spreading with voyages of exploration. It seems as though they stumbled across a whole new continent. Well, new to them. It was familiar ground to the current inhabitants. <laughs> Under green cliffs runs a winding channel, disturbed by a lone navigator, a man striking forward in a canoe meant for three. The eight companions with whom he set out have been abducted by pale and bearded men, armed with radiant weapons and shields. The man reaches his village, tells them of the ambush, and then rallies a war party for the counterattack. His people are native to the land. 
Long ago, their ancestors abandoned the Eurasian landscape, braved prehistoric seas in the tundra of mammoths, and settled deep into a world hitherto untouched by humans. As one age passed into the next, the bridge between the two hemispheres was broken, and each half of the planet diverged in mutual ignorance of the other. Millennia bore witness to the cyclical death and birth of great empires, peoples and languages, prophecy and faith. The Vikings of Scandinavia, having ravaged Europe and established outposts on Iceland and Greenland, have just interrupted tens of thousands of years of hemispheric estrangement. They promptly killed their eight Native American captives. This small band of Norsemen are led by Thorvald Eriksson. His brother Leif earlier made landfall on the American coast, but failed to encounter any native inhabitants. Now the swarm of indigenous canoes comes into view. The Vikings gather to their ship for cover. A staccato rain of stonehead arrows beats against their raised shields. After some time, the siege ends and the indigenous people paddle away. But a fateful arrow protrudes from the trembling side of Thorvald Eriksson. He asks his men to lay him to rest in this foreign soil with a pair of crosses at his head and feet. After the captain's final orders are carried out, his men return to the American settlement founded by Leif Erikson and return to Greenland in the spring. But soon there is another stir, a distant toll of iron and plumes of listless smoke. Dragon boats cruise along the water's edge. A man called Thorfinn Karlsefni has reached the Leif Erikson settlement along with a party of nearly 70 settlers, Christian and pagan alike. It seems divine favor has blessed these seagoing people with a beached whale from which to feed. They settle warmly in their sod houses for the long winter. One day out of the spring woods, people appear. Although frightened at first by the Norse bull, they soon open their packs to present warm pelts from the local fauna and gesture toward the Norse weapons. Through guarded and fumbling attempts to communicate, Karlsefni makes clear that he will not trade his iron weapons. Instead, he offers the milk of their livestock. The Native Americans take delight in the strange beverage, trading all of their pelts for it. Then they disappear again. Karlsefni orders his men to build a palisade around the settlement. The people return in the fall in greater numbers with more pelts. In the tense reunion, one Native American attempts to take an iron weapon, and a Viking strikes him dead. The other Native Americans flee, but Karlsefni anticipates retaliation. He sends out his Norse warriors to lure them into the forest, and then they ambush them. Tomahawk and arrow meet axe and shield. The Vikings scatter the Native Americans and leave a number of them dead in the woods. Oh, no, 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 no,
I thought that interesting that they gave them milk. 79% of Native Americans are lactose intolerant. I can begin to see a side reason why they weren't so glad to see the new arrivals. Go! Of course, you know, this means war. So I'm back here in Kentucky at the Wild Turkey Distillery, and I want to let you in on a something. The folks here and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon, no apologies. Seven million children suffer from asthma more than any other chronic disease. Most asthma attacks are caused by allergic reactions to allergens, including those left behind by cockroaches and mice. In fact, 82% of U.S. households contain mouse allergens, and cockroaches are found in up to 98% of urban homes. How can you protect your family? Find out at PestWorld.org. A message from the National Pest Management Association and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Now get a grip upon your chairs and hold your children tight. A mighty feud is starting and you'll see it all tonight. The Clampett clan is fighting mad, their honor's been besmirched. Sweet Ella May's been courted, but the darling ain't been churched. It was young Sonny Drysdale that courted her and fled. And now the Drysdale family will feel hot clampet lead. Cause stranger, you don't trifle with a hillman's daughter fair. Or you will face his rifle and he'll deeply part your hair. We're gonna diverge off this path of war for just a moment onto a smaller path. Uh, that path leads up to war. Uh, just as two people can fight. And that fight becomes a skirmish, then it also can become a feud. And when I think of feuds, I think of the Hatfields and McCoys. The Hatfield-McCoy feud, also described by journalists as the Hatfield-McCoy conflict, involved two rural American families of the West Virginia, Kentucky area along the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River in the years 1863-1891. The Hatfields of West Virginia were led by William Anderson Devil Ants Hatfield, while the McCoys of Kentucky were under the leadership of Randolph Old Randall McCoy. These involved in the feud were descended from Joseph Hatfield and William McCoy. The feud has entered the American folklore lexicon as a metonym for any bitterly feuding rival parties. The Hatfield and McCoy feud it started with Roseanne and John C. Hatfield, and it bloomed from there. The story I think would be the most true is what my dad always told me, was after the Civil War, Dead Wentz and Randall, there was a little bit of hard feelings in between the both of them as Confederates. 
Devil Ants gathered up all the guns, run off, left Randall. Randall ended up in prison for three years, and that's when it started. Then uh, when they come back, Randall's brother got killed. The McCoys always know that Devil Ants killed him, and they never could prove it. Well, you know, some say it's over a hog. I've always been told it's over, you know, a woman. Well, the true part about it, Roseanne got pregnant out of wedlock to John C. Hadfield. Back then, it was a cardinal sin. A lot of people say it goes back to timber rights and property rights. Nobody really knows how it started. It's just two stubborn men that had a disagreement and dragged their whole families down. The McCoys done all this. And I've always thought that, you know, I was raised up to it. It's been embedded in you. I think that there's distrust handed down through your through your heritage. The feud was a, a lot that I guess shouldn't have went on. There was a lot of anger, a lot of fighting, a lot of killing. They told so many lies, they didn't know what the real story was. Later on in the years, I know, you know, Dave Wentz, you know, he changed his ways before he died. But the uh, sad part was, it didn't change our ways. Oh, you're a McCoy. I know you that. You damn straight I'm a McCoy. I'm proud yeah. of it. When I you're one of them thieving damn hat thieves. Yeah. Possession is nine-tenths of law. They have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and definitely unaware that the feud, it's over. Damn, Jeff, would you follow us up here? No, no, we never followed you, Jim. Wasn't that enough down there, picking and thumping on each other, follow us up here? I thought I smelled a skunk, but it wasn't a skunk. McCoy. I'd say the feud between Hatfield and McCoy's is still alive. That bitch because your fence is three inches one too far away or you know, you mowed your grass or something. They continuously bring this up, they continuously harass us, and when you are harassed, you definitely are gonna fight back. Uh, Hatfields and the people when when they get they back. Nonsense, you know. People know it here better than anywhere. And the legacy is a part of history. We can't change it. It'll be here till the day we die. I try to stress to my kids and teach them what it was like, you know, because I want them to carry out their name the rest of their life, you know, and keep it down, because it'll fade out. Throughout history, it's, well, it's littered with feuds turning into all-out wars. It becomes a family tradition. And when we're talking about the tradition of war and families, hey, how about the Mongols? You may have guessed it. Yeah, we're talking about old Genghis. I guess it's because I kind of changed my direction. Lord, I guess I went and broke their family tradition.
In the 13th and 14th centuries, the Mongols established the largest land empire in human history. At its furthest extent, the Mongolian Empire stretched from coast of China along the northern border of the Himalayas, encompassing much of today's Middle East, from Persia to the Black Sea, much of south-central Russia and Ukraine, and Europe to the gates of Vienna. This was done on foot, wagon, and most famously, on horseback. By the time the Mongols reached the eastern borders of Ukraine in the late 1200s, some of their armies numbered 100,000. But it was not their numbers that were the Mongols' primary weapon. Terror was. That policy of terror started with their first great leader, the infamous Genghis Khan. He's not infamous everywhere, however. The Great Khan, as he is also known, is still a national hero in Mongolia today. of our understanding of the barbarians is not completely accurate. To treat the barbarians as a monolithic block, an unchanging entity, uncouth, uncivilized, running around without organization or without any sense of society is completely inaccurate. The Romans used to laugh at the barbarians. They viewed them as uncultured simpletons who were like animals. The word barbarian evokes such a kind of negative context. Barbarians to whom? To themselves, they were freedom fighters. The Romans defined the barbarians as the other, as the non-Roman, non-Latin speaking people. Outside of Italia, they're looking toward Gaul. They're looking towards Germania and Britain and looking at their traditions. There are multiple tribal systems, not as nations, but as disparate peoples. The Republic was growing, and the people who lived on the boundaries of Roman rule were undergoing a period of great bloodshed. They had to make their choices. Some of them decided to ally with Rome and to accept the fact that they wouldn't be fully independent. Others were having nothing of it, and they were willing to continue the fight at whatever the cost. As Rome conquered these new places, they imposed their own infrastructures as well, which was completely new to so many of these places, and essentially bringing urbanization to areas that hadn't been urbanized in the past. When it came right down to it, you had people who didn't have that kind of a culture. Rome couldn't adopt it, Rome couldn't assimilate it. And these people had their own pride. They had their own determination. They sought their own well-being. And of course that leads to conflict. The barbarians, so-called, have the advantage of being able to use everything at their disposal, for example, terrain and tactics and weaponry and so forth. In novel ways, they're much more flexible Everybody was fighting for survival, for something that went far beyond their own lives. The barbarians who fought against the Roman Empire did so for many reasons. Sometimes they did it for glory, sometimes they did it to protect their home. 
Sometimes they did it just because they were so used to fighting they didn't know what else to do. Rome became the most powerful state in the world by the first century BCE through a combination of military power, political flexibility, economic expansion, and more than a bit of good luck. This expansion changed the Mediterranean world and also changed Rome itself. Well, that's the rise of the Roman Empire. What about the fabled fall? In the second century AD, Rome had reached its zenith, its greatest territorial extent. It was kind of like when a roller coaster gets to the very top of a rise and is about to go down on the other side. You get this glorious moment of feeling like you're on top of everything, and you're almost unaware that terror is about to start. This happened, I think, to the Romans in the second century. They were sitting on top of the world and weren't aware that in the third century, everything was going to come apart. You could say the Roman Empire's eyes are big in its stomach. It pushed really far, and then it ended up with an empire which was too big to manage. The first signs of the empire being torn apart in its very fabric is the crisis of the third century. You've got revolts, you've got civil war, hyperinflation, and a string of useless emperors. As the Roman Empire began to crumble and the territories that it had once controlled began to fall away from Roman power and fall into the hands of barbarians, they had to come to grips with the fact that they were no longer the only big player in this game, that they were slowly surrendering power to other people that they had to now treat as equals. Rome was in some senses a victim of its own success. It had become such an incredible source of power and of wealth it became a prize in an unending series of civil wars and political intrigues, which in the end brought about its collapse. The cost of the building, the kind of imperial power Rome has in the Mediterranean world were enormous. The costs on Roman society were incalculable, and the bill had to be paid. We're amazed that Rome lasted as long as it did. But the fact that it collapsed is not so much a sign that the Romans themselves were or had a bad idea in undertaking this project at all. It's more of a sign that empires are bound to go up and down, to rise and to fall. Another technological advancement, I guess you could call it that, of war, we have gunpowder. While trying to discover a potion of immortality, Chinese alchemists of the Tang Dynasty accidentally discovered saltpeter, the main ingredient of gunpowder. Upon further experimentation, saltpeter was combined with charcoal and sulfur. Gunpowder was first used in warfare as an incendiary or fire-producing compound. Small packages of gunpowder wrapped in paper or bamboo were attached to arrows and lit with a fuse. Bombs of gunpowder mixed with scrap iron would be launched with catapults. Our old buddy Genghis Khan used a Chinese specialist catapult unit in battle that hurled gunpowder bombs and that's how Arabs acquired knowledge of gunpowder 
by the end of the 12th century or the beginning of the 13th. Mongols also used pochongs, a type of Chinese mortar. The first cannon in history was used against the Mongols in 1260. Rockets were also popular and the first torpedo appeared about the same time. The first portable firearm and a forerunner of the handgun was a hand cannon which appeared in several Arabic manuscripts dated to the 14th century. At the same time, and also probably with Mongols, gunpowder arrived to India and became a prevalent form of warfare. Another Chinese contribution to warfare. The Art of War is an ancient Chinese military treatise dating from the late spring and autumn period, roughly 5th century BC. The work, which is attributed to the ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu, or Master Sun, is composed of 13 chapters. Each one is devoted to a different set of skills or art related to warfare and how it applies to military strategy and tactics. The Art of War remains the most influential strategy text in East Asian warfare and has influenced both Far Eastern and Western military thinking, business tactics, legal strategies, politics, sports, lifestyles, and beyond. We've spent this episode unraveling certain aspects of mankind and war. We're not done yet. We still have a, a long way to go with warfare. And man, we still have the Americas. All these frayed ends that we're collecting, I promise you, we are going to braid into a rope. A rope of truth. The truth of war and man. That is the relationship that man has to war and how important it's been in his history and ongoing, unfortunately. They say we practice war. Ugh, they say practice makes perfect. If we ever get perfect at war, heaven help us. I don't think perfect and war go in the same sentence, do they? Well, anyhow, we'll pick this up on episode two of War. Until then, this is your host, Terry Thompson. This is the ABI 1.0 podcast. And uh, watch your six. See ya.